0: Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host Titus and today I am joined again by my good friend Sebastian for another discussion of European cinema of Paolo Sorrentino, our favorite Italian artist extant and someone we'd like to do an entire series on. We have recently talked about The Hand of God, which was produced by Netflix and is easily available everywhere and was nominated for the Oscar this year, but unfortunately didn't win because Hollywood hates art. And since we talked about The Hand of God, we thought to next go to the most famous of the Sorrentino movies, The Great Beauty, La Grande Bellezza, which came out in 2013. It won the Oscar. It won many prizes in Europe. It was somewhat better received by critics around the world than in Italy, but it was very, very popular in Italy as it was in, uh, later in other countries. So it was such a success that certainly it will define both the career of Sorrentino and of his favorite actor, Tony Serviglio. And so it's, if not the the best way to start a series on Sorrentino, it's the best way to get to a series on Sorrentino. We would like to share with you not just why the movie was such a success, but why it's a movie that deserves it, a movie that you might want to watch again every other year or come back to five years from now, or indeed just listen to And look at and track down the soundtrack and do all these things that love of cinema induces in us, since it gives us evidence of beauty that gets at something we don't know quite what, but it drives us, it moves us. And nobody does this better in our time than Sorrentino, so we would like to attend to his masterwork with all due diligence. And with this, Sebastian, I turn it over to you, since I don't know anybody who loves this movie quite as much and with such expertise as you do. Talk to us about Sorrentino and La Grande Bellezza.
1: Oh, hello, Titus. It's a pleasure to be back on, on your show, and hello to all listeners. La Grande Bellezza, where to start? Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, first of all, for lovers of synchronicities out there, I happen to be where one of the scenes was shot, maybe the central scene, but we'll get to that later, on the island of Giglio in Tuscany. Yes, it's one of those movies that's visual poetry to me in the sense that you don't necessarily even need to watch it after a while. You can just listen to it, only watch it without audio or, you know, just look at it. And no matter how you slice it, it's just gorgeous. The visuals are gorgeous. The dialogues are gorgeous. The photography is incredible. I mostly now, after having watched it at least 100 times, I just put it in the background sometimes while I do other things, just to listen to the soundtrack and just glimpse at it and get those beautiful sceneries of Rome. It's a model of Dolce Vita in a way. And you know, the auteur is not really shy about it. He obviously had to confront the fact that he was massively inspired by Via Veneto. And there's one scene where he he admitted, yes, that, that is exactly why I did it. And it's that night scene where Jeb Gambardella walks in Via Veneto. Let's explain quickly to your American audience. Via Veneto in the 60s, like imagine Fifth Avenue, just hyper glamorous with no cars. You can just walk around and it's just bars and Copacabana style. It was where the who's who of not Italy, the world was famous actors, politicians. And La Dolce Vita, it starts in that Via Veneto. And there's this scene where Jeb Gambardella walks in Via Veneto in the same exact location where Marcello Mastroianni walks. It is an ode to Fellini in a way to La Dolce Vita. But in quote unquote, a negative sense. Sorrentino in this one is not celebrating the grandiosity of Italy at the height of the economic boom, the so called economic miracle of Italy a country and a culture in decline. It's the last vestige of what Italy once was and is. In these gauche caviar leftist elites in the lofts trying to keep up, but keep alive, but couldn't. Now, just quickly for those two people that haven't watched it in the world, this is the story of a Neapolitan gentleman, Jeb Gambardella, who in the movie is not an old man. He's quite youthful, but he is advanced in age. And he wrote one incredibly successful book, l'apparato humano, the human apparatus, and for whatever mysterious reason, chose to never write anything again. And it's going to take us for the whole movie to understand why. And actually, it's not even said. The viewer has to understand it on its own. It's a journey. So he's not a misogynist. He's a misanthrope, as he says. And he is one of these last Neapolitan gentlemen we can still see somewhere in Italy. Incredibly well-dressed throughout the film, but without any arrogance. It's not like exhibitionism is the problem of our times just look at me instagram it almost looks like that's how he woke up and it's just one beautiful scene by luca pizzari after the other in this crepuscular realm that you would imagine goethe saw last like when he describes these incredible sunsets there's no real plot something italians made fun of sorrentino for years they call him the no plot man because very few of his movies have plots But there is actually a plot. You just kind of follow it visually and things happen to this man. So you jump into this movie and you have, he's an art critic now. He writes on an art magazine. And so we follow him through these quite questionable modern art artists that he can't stand. And he just makes fun of them. And then later we discover that the one real scoop piece of writing that his editor wants him to do namely the sinking of a boat, La Concordia, that actually happened on this island where I am. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to travel to, and we don't know why, he just refuses to do it. I mean, spoiler out there, it's a love story that never healed, that prevents him from going. Through the eyes of this old, almost Edwardian gentleman of times gone, of an Italy that doesn't exist anymore, through his eyes, through his lens, Sorrentino shows us all the ways, not only Rome or Italy, but maybe the whole world of a certain type has declined. Where elegance is now a means to show, you know, like just look at me how awesome look. It's just showing off money rather than almost like Gianni Agnelli maybe was the epitome of that. Everything he wore, it looks like he just, it was the first thing he casually found. And uh, through the eyes of this misanthrope, which means someone who despises men in general, but not with any hatred. Like there's a great line where he says... Someone asks him, so people have disappointed you? And he answers, no, I was disappointing. Of course, he knows everyone, anyone knows anyone. And the same character asks him, oh, so you know so many people, all these famous people you know, so you must be really happy about it. And he says, oh, it's certainty of disappointment. Jeff Gambardella kind of incarnates the introvert intellectual that kind of doesn't want to fit in the world anymore, but it's also a slave of it. One of the most famous lines is, is, when I was 26, I arrived in Rome, and I didn't just want to go to parties, I wanted to have the power to make them fail. So he kind of hates the world, but is also enslaved to it. Uh, He has the most beautiful terrace in Rome, overlooking the Colosseum, where he gives these parties, but he, he never partakes in them, he only hosts them. If you really look closely, he barely participates. The whole movie is a bit, what happened to us? In the arts, in music, in behavior, what happened to our country, especially in Italy, because it was wildly, Italians weren't that fun of it, until it won the Oscar, obviously, then everyone loved it. But I can remember, especially the left, because Sorrentino was taking a big jab. They didn't like it at all because it was showing them what sort of culture they've created in Italy where everyone is an intellectual in their lofts and just talking about postmodernism, while the world turned into what it did. Instagram, ego-referring, self-absorbing, me, me, me. It's an incredible movie. I would almost dare to say a conservative point of view. Sorrentino, by the way, is, by his own admission, quite the lefty. But like his series on Christianity and the Pope, and he says he doesn't really believe in God. But it's amazing for me to notice that he made one of the best popes I can imagine, Pius the But that's a whole other topic. When you're not in a certain group, you sometimes are more honest about it. You can see more clearly what went wrong.
0: Yeah, there's uh, there's no getting around it. There's something deeply disappointing and even hopeless about this new Italy. In the beginning of the movie, protagonist Jeb Gambardella celebrates his 65th birthday. Old age has snuck up on him. He doesn't exactly look it. He certainly doesn't feel it quite. He still lives the nightlife. But uh, yeah, while he was not paying attention, most of his life passed him by. That middle third of life when people nowadays pretend that they're still young because they can't face the numbers and say, if you're over 30, you are now middle age. That's literally the middle age of your life, make the most of it. People don't feel that way. They already feel their powers slipping or their pleasure in, in, uh, so to speak, in irresponsibility, slipping away from them. And so life can, in a way, pass you by. And that means that the movie forces him to reflect in certain ways on what happened. This life he lives, these people he knows, the events he's involved in, the art he's writing about, or the events and the interviews he has to deal with. What happened to Italy? What happened to his life? And the movie presents his journey of self-discovery. He realizes he has a soul, he's capable of love, and he faces to the ultimate, faces up to the ultimate question of faith. Long series of episodes that indeed don't seem to have a plot. They just are the stages by which he becomes aware of his soul. This is not a rare for a Sorrentino movie. They tend to be about introspection, about men who are surprised, in fact, to discover their interiority for various reasons. And and in this case, it's about turning back to art or turning to art with a renewed understanding and affection for human fragility, for the uh, difficulty of finding hope as a human being and of offering something hopeful to other people. It's both the movie as a whole in its portrait of Italy and in as much as it relates to the protagonist through whose eyes we see and whose voice we hear. Uh, As you say, when he introduces himself, when I was 26, I came to Rome. And of course, at the end, when he declares again for art, for novel writing, for the, that is to say, for the creation of these fictions, which give you introspection, which give you a view into the human soul. And there is the question, what is in there? If you were to look at the interiority of human beings, if you were not to be merely shallow or distracted, what would you find there? Much of it would surely be troubling, uncertain. But would you find anything that could be considered beautiful and hopeful? And all of this stuff is shown either by day or by night. There's very serious, so to speak, separations between them. And uh, so it allows you in a way to follow the movie, especially if you see it a couple of times, you begin to see more clearly what happens by day and what happens by night. Largely by night, this life of dissipation of parties that are sort of a caricature of old Roman orgies they're a caricature of fin de dissipation. They are, as you were suggesting, the death knell of the intellectual left of Europe. In the mid-century, the left won a remarkable triumph in intellectual life in Europe. Everybody became lefty, politically, artistically, in every which way. And they were quite sure of some kind of transformation that is, I guess, heralded by the late 60s. And which nevertheless turned to ashes in their mouth and kind of ruined society. Uh, since Giambardella is 65, that puts him uh, as, as one of the first children of the baby boom in Italy, the new mm-hmm. Italy after the war, after fascism, after destruction, after the monarchy, at that, you know, in the new republican world, the world of uh, Democrazia Cristiana. And uh, what has come of that? This guy grew up in the 60s. Mm-hmm. He encountered Rome in the 70s. And 40 years later, he feels that in a certain way, he's been stuck all this time. At some point, he talks about the train dances they do at parties. And he says, these are the best trains because they never go anywhere. Life has just passed around. us by. And indeed you see an entire cast of characters, the regulars at these parties who are in a certain way friends by long habit by a kind of affection that comes when you know people's lives and their suffering but they are also incredibly rich incredibly ridiculous lefties who have torched their lives and seem to have sold their souls and for nothing it's a strange mix especially when you see these old people at night parties pretending that they're in their 20s i'm
1: sorry to say i know his world and i'm 35 again i'm already as fed up as he is i mean i don't want to It's not about bragging here it's That's why I'm writing on a deserted island for the next two months, just to get away of it all. That's why people like me and you and your audience, I guess, can relate. It's more in the sphere of feelings. Like, I can tell this because I'm very lucky. I'm lucky in many ways. But one of the ways I'm lucky is I've got an incredible window on the generation after me, which is given to me by my little siblings. I was born in in the 80s and then my parents had the wisdom to wait for the other children at least 10 years I'm 15 years away from my eldest sister which I adore and I adore all of them but they grew up in a completely different generation now the smallest of the litter was born in 2001 now he gives me this incredible window to his world I could not influence really which was always a bit of a worry because I as you know I spent most of my life overseas between the states and Australia now, when I came back, I found a grown man. He's now in his 20s. You know, all those things I, I, I read you write and all that stuff. I feel it. Like I've never experienced your world. Because me and you, Titus, we lived the last minute of the previous world. He never had it. He doesn't even know what a lira is or all currency. He was born with these goddamn devices and blah, blah, blah. He says to me, Michael, I have never seen it. But I can feel that something is amiss in this world. Something doesn't add up. Like, this world can't be right. Whether it's Instagram or the whole posting. Or, or I mean, the the movie tries to explain it is via art. Uh, It's no secret. The first character, art character we introduced in the movie is obviously a parody of Marina Abramovich. Now, she can't even explain. And he works for this... Old school, old fashioned, prestigious art magazine, and he obviously tries to put her into not trouble, but tell me what this is about. It's not tell me it's not just fluff, and she can't even explain what the art is. She tries to give some cliche answers. I'm an artist. I don't have to explain myself. And this is the world my brother and his generation, after any anyone born after the 90s, I guess, is living in a world where. First of all, an explanation is even needed for beauty. If I look at a beautiful piece of art, I don't need an explanation. It's beautiful because of something called archetypes. I don't want to get psychological, but as Roger Scruton brilliantly put in many of his lectures, art doesn't need explanation. It's just beautiful for something inside of us. You look at the Parthenon in Greece or the beautiful harmony of a pantheon. That's it. The beauty is right in front of you. When I go to some museum, especially in Pompidou, central Paris, they have to explain to me why this is beautiful. And this is what our society has become. You need to explain why things are the way they are. Nothing is what, I mean, what a certain political agenda would like you to believe is you're not what you seem to be. There was this, sorry to go into politics quickly, but (laughs) someone in America, some politician Say, well, I'm not a biologist. I couldn't tell you whether that's a woman or not. And it's just brilliant. I mean, we live in a world where what appears to be is not what you think it is. You need an explanation for it. And Jeff Gambardella in this movie is like a dinosaur in a world that that he's hating to see change. Uh, There's a great and terrible line where he goes... His best friend leaves Rome. And the only explanation he can give to Jeb Gambardella is Rome really disappointed me. But he says it with such pathos that Jeb Gambardella doesn't, if you remember, he doesn't answer to that line. He just can't disagree. And this is this is what the great beauty, why it created such a fuss in Italy before the Oscar, especially the left, went nuts on it. It's the typical pessimistic view of life movie is, is this all Italy can do? Really, you think you're this is your country? Shame on you. He was called un- unpatriotic. And anyone the Oscars, because Americans, let's face it, they might have many faults like most of civilizations, but they do one good thing, and that's movies. Back in the day, they used to know, and the Americans rightfully gave them their highest honor, because we haven't seen anything like this since Fellini. For those movie buffs out there, which I think your audience is composed of, remember, Fellini was destroyed with La Dolce Vita. The church went nuts over it, but the church had a right to be nuts about it, because, you know, it was the 60s. Politicians, the Democrazia Cristiana, tried to ban it, and then it won numerous prices and again in a typical Italian fashion now it's an icon it's an icon to the extent I didn't realize I didn't know for example that the Dolce Vita garment comes from the Dolce Vita movie it's one of those things I never connected because Steiner wears it or summer cocktails were named after that movie and the Grande Bellezza created a similar vibe I remember 2013-14-15 the Last great parties in honor of La Grande Bellezza, they were trying to imitate them, they were quite embarrassing actually. I had the same feeling when The Great Gatsby. I was in, I happened to be in Sydney when The Great Gatsby came out by Buzz Erman, and all over town, Sydney rediscovered the beauties of the 20s and 30s, and there were Gatsby and parties everywhere. Same up happened in Italy with La Grande Bellezza, but no one seemed To see the point, the whole movie is about him despising that world and yet being enslaved to it because he owes his old persona to it. And then there's a frailty of an old man that needs to come to grips with his own mortality. And the brilliant way Sorrentino does it is everyone around him starts to die. Much younger people. He founds purity, more purity in what is basically a pole dancer than caviar uh, circles of intellectuals, his best friend is a failed dramaturgo, like stage artist, and uh, and he lives in a university apartment with a bunch of kids. One turns out, what, what will turn out to become one of his friends is the last lover of, of his lost love. An old man like him that comes to him in need when his wife dies, meaning Jeb Gambardella's never forgotten love, and they become friends in the end. And there's this great line where in his modest apartment, Jeb Gambardella finds himself in this man's very modest apartment with his wife, a new partner. He said, what are you doing tonight? What 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 do people like you do tonight? I said, well, we're going to have some red wine, do some ironing and watch some TV. And Jeb Gambardella goes, what lovely people you are. But he actually says it with his eyes and they asked him in return, what will you do? I'm going to have many drinks at a party, but not as many as to get drunk. And then when you wake up, I shall go to sleep. But there is such defeat in the way he says it. And who's the other confidant of Jeb Gambardella? Um, his maid. is the great... They always joke in themselves. And there's this great line where obviously it is this gigantic party at Jeb Gambardella's house. But Jeb Gambardella is sitting there just bored beyond belief. And he turns to his maid and, and he goes, do you see this, darling? This is my life. And it amounts to nothing. The only confidant he has is paradoxically one of his quote-unquote helpers, servants. Um, I found there's so many, he was criticized Sorrentino for not having a plot, for having almost Quentin Tarantino-like dialogues, but in the sense that they make no sense. They just seem extrapolated. from, But instead, you do have a lot of sense. You just need to enter his mindset, uh, which is not that easy because our society, I don't want to go into Joseph Campbell here, but we need the protagonist. He needs to have some difficulties that he encounters challenges and then a master, a helper, and he learns something. And then there's the big fight. Something needs to happen in every movie. Take any movie. Something at one point needs, in the third act, usually needs to happen. If you think about it, in the Grande Brezza, nothing really happens. You just follow this man while things happen to him. But in that almost atarasia, in non-action, wu-wei, letting things happen to you, he is remembered about his great suffering in his life. His love life he lost, this friend that leaves Rome, A young, this young pole dancer dies of a mysterious disease. So he's forced to face the only thing he doesn't want to face, which is decay and ultimately death. You know, I keep giving spoilers because it's such an old movie that I'm assuming everyone has watched it. I would, in one term, it's a stoic movie. It's about being stoic in life. Sounds like a cliche, but it's true. The place you least want to look holds the treasure you're seeking. I don't remember who wrote that. But the final scene, what happens? He is forced, and he chooses as well, to go to this one island that he doesn't want to go because that's the last time he saw his love of, the love of his life. And that's when he starts writing finally a new novel. The circle is closed.
0: Yes, it seems like uh, Jeb Gambardella does eventually square with why it is that he started writing novels in the first place. And it seems like he had to waste all this time precisely because he is an artist. He says he he knew from youth, he was sensitive, he was an artist because he had a preference for old things. Mm -hmm. This preference for old things is especially inescapable in Italy, which is full of old and even ancient wonders. And one finds it very difficult to think that there's anything that could rival those things, that there's any new thing possible. That could compare to say nothing of outstrip those older wonders, and somehow waking up to beauty is tied up with that experience of the old and with nostalgia. If you want to be funny, you could say that it's the home of nostalgia. It's almost impossible to be serious about beauty and not be nostalgic. The circumstances are overwhelming most of the time.
1: Almost like melancholia, even yes. more than nostalgia. It's.
0: Because it's impossible not to notice how much has been lost. So you could say that he is stuck in this nightlife with the celebrity, the wealth, the prestige it has got him, because it's the only thing that stands between him and death on the one hand and between him and, so to speak, the death of Italy on the other. All of these ruins. He, he, he looks upon the ruin of the Colosseo every night. He looks upon, uh, upon ruins everywhere he goes. And he is a collector of Italian ruins to the best that... A vision of the beautiful can accomplish that. Things like tourists, every know to go to the baths of Caracalla, but few people yeah. know to seek out the Tempietto of Bramante in Montorio. Everybody goes to Genicolo, but there are many other things, including h- hidden palaces or closed palaces of Rome that are of great importance to the movie, where you see the only real collection of art, and that it's part of the movie's great contrast between contemporary art, which is agonistic. It's not without. Something uh, human. There's a child that is agonized by, uh, especially her parents and crazy, desperate people's uh, desire for art. But the child is talented. That that girl does seem like she could achieve something if she were not preyed upon, so to speak, if her soul oh, was oh, sucked oh, out oh, of oh, her oh, by oh, this oh, terrible world.
1: You nailed it. It's just a position. The whole movie is about like how look how horrible the modern world is. But he finds glimpses of hope in every scene. Like for example is this great scene, again, where it's like La Dolce Vita. He's walking at night in uh, Via Veneto, and he sees filthy, rich Saudi Arabians very rudely eating pasta in a kind of crude way, and he sees no beauty whatsoever. There's just rich Chinese getting out drunk from a pub. Of And then, do you remember what happens? He has a fortuitous encounter with Katrin Deneuve, and there's almost no line. The, the, he says nothing. It's just Madame Mardin. And she turns and she says, "we," oui. And in that gorgeous smile, she's like, what is she, 70? She's still gorgeous, but of a classic beauty. There's just a couple of seconds of silence between the two. She smiles and that's it. Then she says, good night. And he says, good night. Like in that instant, Solentine is telling you all that was needed was that moment of beauty, those di Okay, I'm translating roughly from the Italian. But the movie ends it with this beautiful quote, which says, this is what humans are all about. Those sparuti, those sparse moments of beauty in the midst of everyday life and then miserable man But it's actually a hopeful movie. And you know, as an artist, as an artist, as an art commentator, a critic, genius ploy, to observe the world by Sorrentino, he's forced to go see these horrifying things like that glorious scene where he has to comment on that Botox, whatever it is. The setting is beyond gorgeous. So you have this incredible gorgeous setting where the doctor is venerated like a monk, like a guru. And he's just a guy giving fillers. And the face in Gambar, the, the expression on face is beyond. And then the very next, not the very next scene, but the next assignment he has is to commentate on this gorgeous photographic exhibition of this man that's starting taking pictures, his father started taking pictures of his son, now an adult, every day of his life, And that's the one time you see Jeb Gambardella almost to the point of the, on the verge of tears. The music is perfect, the the, the whole scene is perfect, but you can see him walking around and in the eyes of these pictures, he can see his own life, like how he aged, but how ultimately it was a beautiful life. So Sorrentino, it's, it's such genius. He moves you toward the squalor, but there's always beauty if you just look hard enough. And then there's the spiritual side. At the very end of the movie, you turn into the spiritual in the form of this brilliant character of the archbishop that has no spiritual advice to give whatsoever. He's just lost. He's he's more of a party goer than anyone else. And unexpectedly, more wisdom comes out of this tiny, tiny, tiny lady. She's a billion years old. That in one sentence gives you the whole point Sorrentino is trying to make. And she says do you know why I only eat um, roots? And Jeb Gambarella goes, no, because roots are important. Now, the viewer has to keep in mind, Jeb Gambarella left his native Naples very young, never went back. Everything around him started dying, His the the love of his life. So he's the ultimate zradicato, um, someone without roots. He's a citizen of the world, but as the Italian poet said, a citizen of the world is a citizen of nowhere. Giacomo Leopardi, the famous Italian poet once said, once Rome made everyone a Roman citizen, meaning whole empire, Rome lost its meaning. Sorry that I'm going through history and movies here, but it's important because I think Sorrentino was trying to say in that one line, your problem, Jack Gambardella, is that you try to forget your own roots. You've got to go back and find them again. Now, how prescient was it Now, in 2022, it's getting to a point where you almost need to be proud that you have no roots. We're all citizens of the world, and Russia is threatening this now. Now, in Italy, something incredible is happening. If I may quickly go into contemporary history. Until COVID, we were told that freedom is less important than health, and that your own country borders. Now that there's a war, all of a sudden you need to give your life for freedom. But here's the important point I'm trying to make: the left is telling us that country was invaded, the borders were destroyed, and there are Ukrainians. They should be proud of the Ukrainians. But hold oh, on a minute! You just told us for the past 20 years that there's no such thing as borders and culture. And Sorrentino in 2015—that's that's 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 yeah—that's yeah, that's almost you know 10 years more away. In this man was trying to say what our society is becoming, a borderless, cultureless, almost soulless, at one point, society, where all you have is now, all you must be is young, and you need to just distract yourself, distract yourself, party, 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 but for God's sake, don't spend one second alone, because you might ask yourself questions. Vis-a-vis, who are you? What's my place here? What happens after this wise old nun tells him roots are important? He goes back to the island that he hasn't seen in, he was 20, in 40 years. And that's where he starts writing his novel again. He had to find his roots, realize that he is Jeb Campardella from Naples, and the life of his life is the best thing that ever happened to him. Even though it never happened in the end, it was still the best thing that happened to him. And voila, we have a new great novel.
0: First of all, novels, uh, they they don't have an effect on society now. And novelists aren't images of uh, having an effect on society, of uh, achieving some kind of spiritual depth, setting people to write, so to speak, by showing them what the world is like, even though they can't quite believe it at first. At some point, directors took this job over from uh, novelists. Fellini was a very good example of that showing people what life is like and which they do not want to see. Indeed, La Dolce Vita was a scandal, and it was scandals. It showed things to people that they were not ready for. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it was uh, both humane and in a political sense of public service. It was trying to show Italians that the direction in which they are going with luxury and the kind of celebrity worship would be soul draining ultimately. It would create... Oppression oh, with that. Uh, exactly. I mean, the... Felin uh, la Vita admits that the Nobiltà Nera, the old Catholic nobility of Rome, separated itself from Roman life, and that eventually sapped its vitality. But he suggests that the celebrity worship is in a way even worse. It uh, leads to something. Uh, la Vita is a movie that starts with chasing after Jesus and ends with seeing the devil in the deep yeah. shore on the shore. It's just it's a harsh lesson, actually, you can see why people were shocked. And when people instead turned around, as you were saying, to celebrate this great big success, because it's international, and such a big deal. What they celebrated was exactly what they shouldn't have, the glamour. That was something they were willing to live with. The criticism, the threat of nihilism over Ali that they would not face. And so indeed, Sorrentino took over that job in turn from Fellini and showed again this thing that nihilism is advancing, that our fake love of youth makes us, uh, in fact, hate life. That is, it's, it's very few people in this movie actually look at young people with the enjoyment mm-hmm. that adults have and only adults can have in just looking at young people, which requires a certain distance and a certain recognition. That we are not that way and we are edging towards our own deaths. Uh, it is not an attempt to enslave youth or to fake it, merely to recognize for, for what it is and to remember that. And that's very, very rare in the movie. It's a sign of spiritual health that uh, is vouchsafed more to Jepp and to his uh, wannabe, friend, uh, wannabe writer friend, Romano, who eventually abandons Roma. Romano does not fit in Roma. Roma disappointed him, as you said, but he is stuck in a world of envy and flattery and vanity that uh, breaks his heart, and so Romano must leave Roma. Uh, Jeb thinks that maybe he might be able to deal with this, but as you said, even he has to live this world of vanity to admit that as a shield in face of mortality, all this success and all this frenetic parting is very, very bad. It will not do. And so he abandons that vision of beauty celebrity glamour for another vision of beauty that—that that is this recollection of a young woman he knew when he was barely 18, when he was barely becoming a man, who in a certain way set him on his life's path, or rather should have set him and didn't. Beauty did not matter to him enough when he was young. He, he almost tried to justify himself to the old, sainted uh, nun who asks, why didn't you ever write another book? I liked your book. He says he was searching for beauty, but he somehow never found it. Well, in a way, he found it too easily in glamour, in success, in prestige, in, uh, that is to say, in flattery. And he became, as you say, a man very disgusted with things that he nevertheless feels the need to do. Uh, that's that's the problem with flattery and vanity, you end up hating yourself for being involved in these other things. And it is only the approaching old age that makes him realize, he says, I'm too old to do things I don't really want to do. And, uh, and, and the realization that people would uh, do well to take seriously at any age at that. And only then, so to speak, can search for beauty again. And part of that, as we said, is the great beauty that is uh, always there in Rome and is not seen because people do not know how to look for it. Indeed, uh, this uh, lady, this stripper that he falls in love with, uh, he falls in love with her because she is what he was like when he was young. She can look at the beauty of Rome with new eyes, without any arrogance and without any conceit. She enjoys beautiful things for what they are. She is impressed with the world of the rich, but not really attracted to it. She doesn't want to be a part of it. Instead, she is the only person to whom he can show the beauties of Rome that have become a secret, so to speak. These are not things he can write about in the magazines. These are not things he has made famous, so to speak, or, or attractive again to the very people of Rome throughout his long career because people don't care anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In, in a way, he can find himself, in a way he can find the pupil in this love. In, in sharing that love of the beautiful, he can think through again what love of the beautiful actually means. The, the importance, therefore, of that uh, lady to the movie is uh, impossible to exaggerate. And then at the end, it is this other woman who is also simple in a certain way. The sainted nun who says, well, I took a vow, of, a vow of poverty and there's nothing to say about that poverty is just a way of life. Speeches cannot give a correlative of that suffering and of that service. Only experience can teach you that. And, and that's in a way the alternative Jep conceives to the search for beauty. The alternative to the search for beauty is the search for holiness and unstinting service. You're dying anyway. You might as well give of yourself as best you can everywhere to everyone in need. Jep realizes that he he, he knows something that people need in their lives: beauty, but there are other things that people need in their lives, a care, a loving care. That uh, is our Christian charity, our uh, self-sacrificing love. If you go around uh, old enough churches, you will see this medieval image of Pietas, which is a swan plucking out its own hard blood to feed its young. It's, it's a shocking image, just like seeing this old nun eventually climbing the scala sang on her knees, uh, San Giovanni Laterano. It's shocking. This is not meant to be pleasing. It's meant to show you what the alternative, for Europe at least, what the alternative to beauty is, it is holiness. And only through this confrontation can Jeff ask himself whether what he does by way of writing novels mean anything. He does not judge himself anymore in comparison with the limousine liberals, the gauche caviar, rich, irresponsible losers, because to judge yourself by those people is to damn yourself. He begins to judge himself by better people. He sees, as you said, uh, what seems like an ordinary Italian couple who is content with life, for whom it, uh, this old man and his girlfriend, life is not a, a terror to them. It's not a misery. They are not involved in trying to seem more glamorous or to get experiences that could justify to them the passing of time. They enjoy each other's company. He, is, he marvels at that. Just like the, the common sense of his uh, this lady who is a servant, a cleaning lady in his house, he marvels at the fact that there are people who have that common sense, who have not been driven to insanity by the luxuries of the modern age. He, he has an awareness, I guess, because he's also an outsider of these other people who are outsiders. Yeah. He, he has a particular interest in the people who have not gone crazy. Just like his editor, the Lady the Dwarf, Dadina, uh, she also is an outsider, a misfit, as she says. She has always looked at the world from a low altitude, she says, and, uh, and that's a very different perspective. And uh, this would seem to be essential to all people who are aware that in, in some ways our world is screwed up and decaying. And you might be able to shore it up in some way. Religion might help in a way. Art might help in another way. There are other things that can contribute to saving civilization. But all of them seem to have this in common. They are the perspectives of outsiders. They are the perspectives of critics. They are the kinds of things that if you say them, you make a scam.
1: The other character that I use, he's got zero lines in the movie, but one line is about him, the poet, the last poet. And they're having their, you know, little uh, evening chats. And then at one point, the guest, who obviously does not belong to the group, she's just a guest coming from Milan. She says, why does that guy never talk? And the cameraman, I'm assuming Sorrentino, points directly at Jeb Gambardella, who leans over, looks in the camera and says, because he listens. Nothing more is said about that man, because he listens. Art must
0: begin in that passive receptivity. And Jeb, of course, has that himself, As you are suggesting there's a reason the action turns to him in this moment. He can say what this is about. And, and uh, you, you know, uh, Jep in a way, you could say, is, is too active. He's too involved. As you were saying, in his one moment of it autobiography, he indulges in talking about himself in the past tense, reviewing his past life. It's an arrogant gesture for which he pays in great suffering later in the movie, uh, because the young Jep Gambardella was in, way, in certain ways wiser than the old Jep Gambardella, who has to learn again that the hard way. But he does talk about himself in the past tense and he says, as you said earlier, uh, I came to Rome, I wanted to be ilredi mondeni. Uh, mondenita, uh, there's no good English word for this in, in, in Europe There, I think many languages have a word for this because it's, it's, it, it means to be worldly. But worldliness, I guess, is, is uh, an uglier version of urbanity. Mondenita is urbanita of a kind. And uh, in English, you don't have that. Worldview worldly wise tends to mean something, the classe in, uh, in English. But it suggests the role of an artist, the man who sees society and praises society, the man who flatters, as he describes, because what he describes is incredibly beautiful and attractive. He is a man whose power comes from the fact that people are slaves to fashion and he becomes uh, perhaps the most prestigious slave in the circus of fashion. But as you were saying, nevertheless, he is a slave to fashion. And and he discovered in that somehow authority. He says that it's not that he wanted to be at the parties. He wanted to have the power to make a party fail. I, oh. I. To distinguish good taste from bad taste. He wanted in his heart to make the beautiful authoritative. All artists wish this, right? You make a work of art, you want by that act to say to your audience this, is that which you should pay attention. And other things, they're just trash, aren't they? This is what is worth your time, what can, at least to an extent, justify to your mortality. The time you spend with this work of art, you'll never get again, but it will be worthwhile because there's something transcendent. This, this beautiful thing will give you a taste of eternity, and that makes mortality easier to bear. That's the, the, what art is about. That's why beautiful is still a concern to us. But we no longer have any kind of power to say, uh, such things are beautiful and such things are not. It is no longer possible to throw out the trash, so to speak. Indeed, the trash has ended up throwing out the art with the enthusiastic approval of elites who have ended up hating beautiful things and therefore always look for excuses to destroy them. We are stuck with the fact that most of the beautiful things come from our past and it's not they' are not always easy of access, but they are usually popular. And the fact that they're not easy of access and popular makes them hateful to all arrogant elite uh, types. And few people reconcile themselves to that great heritage. Mostly, if if they have ambition, they want to burn it down. That terrible difficulty, what fashion is doing to us in in, uh, requiring new things, it has, on the one hand, to destroy our heritage and personally to destroy our memories. Otherwise, you would notice that there's not a lot of new stuff. There's just recycled stuff. And recycled stuff does not have the charm that fashion requires. And so so this guy ended up in a very bad way as a slave uh, fashion, but he didn't start out that way. He wanted the beautiful to matter in people's lives and in a way to, as an outsider, to purify Roman society, to purify through the beautiful, to inspire people in such a way that they wouldn't debase themselves and they wouldn't debase art. And presumably because of that failure, he never wrote again, because what is even the point? He looked for and he could not find it. Because as an artist, you always also see with the eyes of your audience. An artist is in need of an audience. He is not simply mm-hmm. by himself. And that terrible disappointment, he says, I disappointed everybody. That is a great moment of pride. You know, you have to be somebody to disappoint everybody. Most of us don't say I disappointed everybody because we don't even believe anybody had expectations of us. But this man wanted to be an epoch-making artist. That's why he thinks he disappointed everybody. All his success, all his celebrity, all his glamour is just the evidence of that disappointment. Had he been a real artist, people would have been more shocked, but more serious. They would have understood that something epoch making is happening in front of them. Instead, they, they see only fashion. And that's killing art, it's killing any hope that human beings can reflect on our experience. And at least in moments of inspiration and at least, through you know, terrible long years of work that might not pay off. You don't know when you start on a quest for a, a beautiful thing, whether you will come out with a work of art or fail. You don't know. You have to have the daring. You have to take your chances. At least in such circumstances, you could achieve something. But that is not something people find easy to believe anymore. They find it easy to despise, but not to believe. And of course, in that way, art has joined faith. Among the things that the people ordinarily admire but are afraid of and the elites hate because they feel that they are incapable of them and they, they, they don't want to have a bad conscience. They don't want to look at themselves as too barbaric for civilized art. They don't want to look at themselves as too inhumane for faith. So, so you end up in a situation where the hatred of the elites and the fear of the people has exiled the men of faith as in the men of art which I think is why you find them often together in Sorrentino's movies. And I think it's why spiritual health is often signaled in his movies by showing nuns, especially young nuns running around, kids in, in, in convents, uh, people who are still protected in a certain way by faith. And you can therefore see them in their innocence and remind yourself somehow this is involved in what we were looking for in art, in the beautiful.
1: Definitely so. It's it Yeah, there's these scenes where Sorrentino is telling you exactly what you're saying, that it is through the eyes of a child that you can... There's many children in this movie. There's just just en passant, that glorious first scene where he walks early morning, and it must have been 6am, 7am, through Rome, the centre, and he sees nuns and and children. Everyone in Italy was wondering, actually, at the time uh, why he hesitated so much, because it's long shots of scenes that you need to be there. You could take, I'm not kidding, 40% out of the movie, the plot would still be the same. I think it's like flowers. Flowers, they don't need to have a reason to be beautiful. They're just beautiful. So you've got these long epic scenes of children playing with nuns and uh, and art everywhere. Every single shot, if you just freeze it, could be a work on its own, a work of art of its own. I mean, also thanks to Luca Bigazzi, I'm assuming. This is something that has been passing me for a while because it's very cryptic, even to this day. That scene where they are at um, Il um, Tempietto del Brunelleschi. A child gets lost. She's underground. it turns out. Mother is looking for her. And there's this incredible cryptic dialogue, which I've been trying to decode. Maybe you have some insights that can help me. The girl asks you, who are you? And Jerkan looks down and says, me? But I am... And he can't find an answer. And she says, shh, you're no one. This... Scene has no sense. I mean, plot-wise, absolutely unnecessary, and yet one of the most gorgeous scenes. A child telling this profound, successful man, you're no one. She's hidden. And that movie is full of these cryptic, almost nonsensical dialogues and scenes.
0: You know, you have these fundamental disclosures that show up. And, of course, as an audience, we're not ready for them. Uh, it's is part of the distinction between being an artist and not being an artist. Uh, mm-hmm. Jet is at least aware that this is happening right now, that the, something is being disclosed to him that he's not entirely ready for, but he's aware it's there. The audience will have to watch the movie again. You know, the so Tempieto it, of Bramante is it's itself fine. hidden, right? It's, it's this Spanish embassy thing, Spanish cultural center there by San Pietro in Montorio. And it's supposed to be where St. Peter was executed in the first century. Now, the, the, the oddity of the scene is that the, there's the mother running after this child who's playing, and the mother has no idea where the child is. The child is underground. Uh, granted, if you go there, you see that it's, it's a bit hard to see. How do you get at the level under the temple? Why is there a level under the temple? Well, it reminds you of this ancient history of Christianity there. Is The woman can't do that. The separation between the mother and the child. The child is within, underneath things, and the mother is desperate outside, uh, exasperated, screaming, but helpless. Uh, she's an adult, and in a way, she has lost something. But the child from that privileged position does look at, at Jeb and asks and answers the questions herself, and he's struck by the fact that, yeah, it makes perfect sense. You're nothing to a child, first of all, because your importance is strictly a matter of convention. It's that some adults have told other adults, all of whom are as bored and vain as you are, uh, about this thing. But it does not matter to the child. Whereas if uh, you had anything of you know this uh, beautiful, this Greek beauty of the Tempietto of Bramante, or on the other hand, you had the faith to which it is consecrated, then you would be someone. Then you would matter even to a child. You go there a million times. But that one time he was actually there. He realized what it means for that to be consecrated to Saint Peter and to have be been made by Bramante, and compared to that, you're nobody. Uh, I admit I felt that way. So this was uh, I I saw it uh, when I saw it. Yeah, no, I,
1: I I absolutely agree. The eyes of the children in that movie are always in in full biblical tradition. You know, if you don't return as children, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the, the 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 little girl artist. She doesn't want to, she's forced to, et cetera, et cetera. It's brilliantly shot because for the first few seconds, actually, you do actually go, okay, this is crap. What she's just throwing paint on the wall. And then Sorrentino, the genius that he is cuts and then goes back to the girl and you see the, the work taking, the, the work about taking shape after I, I'm, I'm, you know, one assumes a few minutes and it's gorgeous and it's, this incredible work of art. Now let's remind your audience that the, the, the previous scene was some knife thrower throwing knives at this not so charming woman, and everyone was clapping. I can't speak well enough of this movie, that's why I keep watching it. The soundtrack, the photography by Bigazzi, even the post-move, because few people realize, because they you know once the movie's all finished, they just turn it off, it continues. It goes into this long shot of the River T- um, Tiber with this gorgeous music by, you know, I mean, shout out to um, the sacred music by John Taven. It's this gorgeous piece of sacred music. And um, he just wants you to follow him inside of Rome. Like, don't just turn the movie off. Stay with me a little longer and appreciate Rome at sunset while the, the credit roll. He's not afraid of using precious movie time, which costs thousands and thousands of dollars a second to just give you that one extra, telling you that one extra thing that it wants you to tell. I've never, I've, since Fellini, I've never seen anything like it with the possible exception uh, of um, Terence Malick, but it is no secret that Sorrentino is a massive fan of Terence Malick. Now you watch Night of Cups, massively underrated movie. In my opinion, it's gorgeous. It's a journey. The problem, what, what's the problem with movies like Terrence Malikis and Sorrentino? They take their time. They're not in any haste. There's no action. you got to follow the movie, follow the visuals, follow the music. And that's when you'll find something inside. It's almost an alchemical journey, like hidden under all these layers. If you're patient enough and you listen and you wait, then you get to the rubedo, to what the airwolf was t- telling you. Maliki
0: is the the right comparison even in terms of cinematography the rhythm the motions of the camera and the choice of music of course Maliki is the most famous Christian artist in our times at least in cinema I mean but I think you're right uh, you know the the La Grande Bellezza the music uh, was uh, the, the movie was scored by Lele Marchitelli who worked on most of his movies but there are all these choices of music that are secular classical music, but point you towards religious music. Uh, As you said, there's this uh, John Tavener uh, setting of The Lamb by William Blake, which is a quasi-religious poem from Songs of Innocence. And there's uh, the Sorrowful Song Symphony by uh, Hendrik Goretzky. That's uh, one of the beautiful uh, religious movements. And there are another uh, bunch of uh, songs like that, like the Yiddish Song by David Lang, and uh, so on, all of these things are supposed to show that even in secular music, uh, there are all of these things suggesting that uh, the longing that music gets at, that is especially true of classical music, is religious. It has has somehow to do with Christianity and the transformation of art, transition from the High Middle Ages to the Renaissance, which again, Italy, So it's not just the national past, it's the civilizational inheritance. And to the extent to which a work of art like cinema can guide you through this kind of music, it suggests it has a power over our souls that we don't recognize anymore, or we won't admit to it. But then it just happens to you. And as you say, it takes you over and it draws you in and it guides you and you discover a kind of longing and at the same time, a kind of patience that has a kind of spiritual effect. Uh, I think that's why, or, although he's a kind of lefty as an artist, Sorrentino is very much on the conservative side of things. Since is, uh, to look to incredible. the beautiful is to look to the past, and to look to the past in Italy, especially, is to look to faith. That's uh, not not something easily dealt with, but it is. Uh, it has an astonishing power, and he looks even to the music for these insights into what is it that's that's making us so restless and why uh, would we turn to art as on the one hand solace and on the other hand a way of cluing ourselves in on what's happening. In that sense, you could say both Malik and Sorrentino are very Pascalian as artists. Yeah. They work on our restlessness, they acquaint us with our fear of death and they point us to the possibility of faith. So uh, not to be neglected. And maybe a good way to close is to reflect a bit on those two scenes of art at the, the party. I think they are visions Sorrentino offers about what happened to us, what's wrong with us. There are these two examples of uh, what might be called an art performance or modern art that give two visions, to different visions of what the artist is. In the case of the knife thrower, He does almost a caricature, a silhouette in paint by throwing knives at the person. That's partly a a metaphor for the artistic vision, for the gaze upon the subject that is being portrayed, and partly for the excitement, the thrill, and the fear that the audience feels because they are being objectified, so to speak. They are revealed in a certain way that might not end out to their liking. Indeed, when her portrait is done, the lady feels glad she survived. There is something disgusting and circus-like about the whole performance, but inside of it, in that vision of the, the painting as throwing knife, there is something true about how dangerous an artist is, about what a portrait might reveal of you. Uh, one looks, for example, at the, the, the great portraits of rulers. You know, you, you look at the popes painted by Raphael, the dodges painted by Titian. One can't escape the notion that when those men saw themselves as art revealed them, they could see their failures and their mortality. It is, it is a very dangerous thing. Now, the other vision of painting, the child who uh, is angry at the canvas and throws these these uh, buckets of paint and ends up full of paint herself in this indistinct dark color, her, her, her long hair now smudged, and then nevertheless, out of the canvas, she does make something that's supposed to show you, uh, again, there's something very ugly about it, because it's the audience enjoys her suffering. Yeah. And that's, that's like a Kierkegaard insight into how audiences enjoy the suffering of the artist, because it feels like life torturing things, like, like instead of blood sports, we have arts in modern times, because we're so sophisticated, we would not admit to our own cruelty. But on the other hand, from the artist's point of view, you get, again, something true about the character of of art that
1: it is a terrible
0: struggle, and and you're very uncertain both about the things you're working with and whether you will be able to make something out of it. And both of these things get at the problem of uh, painting and uh, cinema and all of these beautifying arts. Are you supposed to be flattering people? Because if you're supposed to be flattering people, it's very undignified, but at least you know exactly what you're doing. It's a job you're hired for. But if art in giving portraits of human beings and in giving portraits of society is not meant to be flattering, then it is a rival to politics. Then the artist is in a way sitting in judgment of all the people he's painting, so to speak. The audience is not there for amusement. They're absolutely deceived about what's happening. Whereas the artists themselves reveal part of the truth about what's happening, that art is in judgment of a society, of an age, of civilization. And that in a certain way, it is as beautiful, it is above ordinary considerations of life that tend to have to do with uh, getting what's good for us, getting an advantage here or there, securing our property or our reputations, things which are necessary, but they're not for the most part, beautiful, and they are not worthwhile in themselves. So you could see from the, in this great disjunction between what the audience is doing there and what the artists are doing, what, what the catastrophe modern society, so to speak, has become. It is, is no longer no able to recognize art as a depiction that therefore is judged by whether it uh, resembles the thing it depicts. And, however, in being imitative, it is also analytical. It shows us for what we are, and it tries to understand why we are that way. That is to say, it is conducive to self-knowledge. And it is the way in which the artist wrestles with a society of which he cannot exactly be part because he's always sitting apart looking at it. And, of yeah. course, that's, uh, that's something that is especially true of Jeb who is barely part of society and whom you can easily see as having climbed to the top of society in a way to escape in order to get a better vantage point and in in, in a way in order to try to make sure even his debasing life as a a man of the world uh, allows him to to take unflinching looks at parts of society we do not wish to see, like the Bulldogs Clinic, that, uh, that scene, it looks like one of the old public baths of Rome from the early 20th century. It's very Art Deco, mm-hmm. And now it's a Botox clinic. It used to be a place of socialization. You could buy your newspaper there, you know, go to the sauna and so on and so forth. At, at the beginning of the century, uh, most apartments did not have uh, baths. So, uh, you know, there were these public baths uh, created to deal with the problem. But in, instead of that, now you get Botox. What, what it means to be a doctor has changed. These people are not doctors. They are embalmers. You are your own corpse Mm -hmm. and mummy. You are your own death enacted by your own money and desperation. But it takes something unflinching and courageous to see that, to go look at it, to report on it. So even debased to the level of reporter, Jeff Gambardella is still an artist, still looking at society and trying to understand what has been happening to the world. And in a certain indirect way, what has been happening to himself. All of these scenes bear thinking in this way. It's why uh, we love coming back to this movie. It's why we love talking about it as well. Sorrentino has not just inspiration, but a great generosity about it. He has created many friendships and he has strengthened friendships like ours, Sebastian. So I'm grateful to Sorrentino and I'm grateful to you for uh, these wonderful conversations.
1: I I owe him many delightful hours. I owe him knowledge of music i had no idea existed anymore john tavern yeah i think the best way maybe to finish this is to go at the beginning i neglected to say the movie begins with one of the most remarkable quotes so the the movie opens as we said with this amazing in the way that it's terrible party like it literally amazes you how trashy it is and it's his 65th birthday and the camera zooms in on him everything goes slow motion and he's lights up a cigarette. And this is the genius line that defines the movie. And Jeb Gambardella says, when we were young, my friends used to ask me what my, uh, what's your favorite thing in life? All of my friends answered, pussy. I said, the smell of a home of elderly people. I was born to be too sensitive. I was born to become a writer. I was born to be Jeb Gambardella. Comes down, if the movie would have ended there, it would have been already been deserving of the Oscar. It's a remarkable statement,
0: and it's remarkably astute about what it means to love old things, to, to search in, in old things for treasure, and to hope that there's some kind of continuity to humanity. Maybe there's something uh, that there are unchanging principles of the beautiful, of the just, of the good. And on the other hand, to worry about, of course, why all things end up ruins. You could say that that's, that's the work.
1: This movie is everything. Art, spirituality, contemporary. It's it's Rome. It's music. You know, actually, one of our next series, if your fans, if your listeners would care to know more about it, I know how successful it was in America, but The, the Young Pope. Again, by Sorrentino. We we should do a Sorrentino series because, as only someone from the left could pinpoint the troubles that the left created, leftist culture permeating us. He's not an atheist, but someone outside of you know religion to make the best pope I've ever seen. I mean, in fiction, obviously. I don't want to offend. Uh, but the Pius the Thirteenth, Jude Law, an American pope, first American pope. Bravo. Let's do another show on this one. Uh, yeah, sure. That should be our next podcast.
0: Uh, we we've. Uh, you know, I think
1: we need a few because it's a very long series. And uh, yeah,
0: and that's that's right. Exactly, it was an entire TV series with all the aplomb of an HBO production and a wonderful cast, and it gave this man uh, a chance to shock the world again with uh, the most uh, beautifully reactionary vision you can. Uh, Put on screen in our times. In fact, nobody knew you could put this on screen before he did it. And of course, in a way, he it, it's both funny and artistic so that it compelled everybody who would never even contemplate this to not just watch it but so to speak fall in love with it and in that way to prove that this vision has an attraction that uh, we can't even confess so to speak so yeah this might be uh, a bunch of conversations
1: well Uh, i'll be happy to have those yeah
0: likewise wonderful idea we'll do that next then
1: Uh, well Peters and you know your audience thank you so much from Tuscany Much love to you. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's going to be a greater pleasure to talk to you again.
0: Thank you so much, Sebastian. All the best until soon
1: when we do our next one.
0: Bye bye. Till we
1: meet again, dear friends.